0: Hebrews is the course of study that we have been focusing on and will be for the next several weeks. The first question in the Heidelberg Catechism is the text that provided the source for the material that we sung just now in that beautiful new song. It goes like this, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer is this, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil he also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly father not a hair can fall from my head indeed all things must work together for my salvation therefore By His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. Beloved, that statement would not be true were it not for what we find written in Hebrews Specifically in chapter 1, verses 5 through chapter 2, verse 4. So, follow along as I read. This is God's Word. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels, as he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, to his will. This is the word of the Lord. We started a short series last week, uh, just three weeks here at the beginning of our study in the book of Hebrews, and we've entitled that series, The Looking to Jesus. That's really what the author wants us to do. The author wants us to remember him, to focus on him, to, to look to him, to follow him to be amazed by him, to be reminded of what he has done for us. And so the way that we do that is to remember certain characteristics about our Lord. Last week, we looked at the mystery of Christ. This week, we'll look at the glory of Christ. And next week, we'll look at the humility of Christ. The mystery of Christ, the glory of Christ, the humility of Christ. Now, when we talk about his glory, we are are talking about something from which we fell short. Well, we as sinners have all fallen short of the glory of God. You probably know that verse. Now, he could have said you have all fallen short of the holiness of God, or you have all fallen short of the perfection of God, but he chose to say you've fallen short of the glory of God. What is the glory of God? The glory of God is what is revealed when male and female together bear his image and have dominion over the earth and rule it in perfect obedience to his law, in sinless perfection, loving him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving their neighbors themselves. And that is what we will once again recover in the new heavens and the new earth in a resurrected body when we enjoy him forever. But in the meantime... We walk around as broken images. We walk around as those who have fallen short of that glory. We live in a world that has been cursed. And yet into that cursed world and into that mass of perdition comes a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Celebrated and announced by angels. And declared to be the one who would come, truly God, truly man, that he might die for man. And then rise again and ascend to the place where he can make intercession for them before a holy God forever. One of the most remarkable things that we get to do as believers is to look to Christ, not in his humiliation and his humanity at the first incarnation, but as the ascended Lord who is one day returning in glory. And that's what the book of Hebrews is going to help us do. Now, in order to talk about the glory of Christ, I want to just break it down into this sort of outline for this morning, and hopefully you'll be able to follow along if we do that. We're going to look at who he is, what he did and why it matters. So in this rather long section, from Hebrews 1:5 to 2:4, we're going to look at who he is, what he did, and why it matters. To begin with, let's look at who he is. When the author wrote the letter of Hebrews, he wrote it in such a way that it could be read, it could be proclaimed, it could literally be preached. Somebody would stand up before the congregation and they would read this letter. The believers would assemble and they would listen to God's word read. And if you were to take this and read it from start to finish, it takes about 40 minutes if you're going at a rather slow pace. And all throughout, you'll see this interchange between the person who is doing the preaching and the people who are doing the listening. There there are questions being asked. There are statements being made. There are summaries being given. There are warnings being issued. It's really an effective way of drawing us into to the very unfolding drama of the story. And this is certainly the case in this section we're looking at here when we talk about who Christ is. Pick it up in verse 5. He says, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, as you know, this is a section where the author is extolling the superiority of Christ over the angels. And so he drops down into a quotation from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. The entire psalm was read to you earlier. And in this psalm, when he quotes it, the people who are the Hebrews, so they are the people very familiar with the Old Testament, would have immediately associated with this psalm the glory of the kingdom of David. Now, this is the psalm where God says to his anointed king that I have established you and I will put the nations under your feet and I have made a covenant with you. But you see what the people realized was that David was not the ultimate fulfillment of those promises. The ultimate fulfillment of the promises were in Christ. In fact, in Acts chapter 13, verse 33, when a great sermon is given to the Jewish people, they are told, as a matter of fact, that the very fulfillment of this psalm, Psalm 2, is Jesus Christ, whom they crucified. And so what would happen is that as the writer and the preacher make a reference to this Psalm, they would have seen that Christ is absolutely superior to the angels and superior to David because he came as the perfect David. Uh, the David that was successful where the first David failed. Uh, the David that is the real king. The David that is the, the true son of God. In fact, we know from John 5:18 that Jesus declared himself to be the son of God, to be the son of David, and people didn't think, oh, well, you're just in the lineage of David. No, they picked up stones to kill him because by saying that he was the son of God, he was saying that he is God. And so the author here goes back and picks up all of those illustrations that the people would have known, and by quoting that verse, as two things firmly fixes Jesus Christ as superior to the angels and anchors his ministry to something vastly superior to David's. But That's not all. He continues on by saying, or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. He goes even further into this Davidic illustration and he says that as much as people loved David, as much as they saw him as being the one who was the king of Israel at its zenith. And though many are called sons and daughters of God, no angel was called the son of God. And no one else but Jesus was called the son of God. You see, sonship is a very important concept. And I say this for two reasons. Number one is that if you were not a son or a daughter in the family, you didn't have any rights you had no access to the Father. You had no right to His property. And so by calling them sons, by calling um, the people who follow God His sons and His daughters, He's establishing a, a family relationship. But it goes so much further when He talks about Jesus Christ being His Son, because He is a Son to Him in that He is equal to The sonship there is not meant to say father and son, and there's a hierarchy, and one is more important than the other. It's to say father and son are coming from the same substance. And therefore, he says, to whom else would he say that you're my son? The answer is no one. No one else can say that they are equal to God except Christ. This is who he is. Only one son of God. And then verse 6, it gets even more serious when he says, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Now, I do want to make a note here, because if you are a careful student of your Bible, and it has some cross-references in the margin, you may be inclined to look up the cross-reference they recommend as being the quotation here, and you won't be able to find it in your Bible. And then you are going to presume that there might be a typographical error. And so you will begin at Genesis 1:1 and read the entire Bible, hoping to find the quote. At which point you will then email me and I will respond to saying it's been a good exercise to read through the Bible, but I could have saved you a lot of time and trouble by telling you that it's not going to be in your English Bible. And the reason is this. The author of the book of Hebrews, when he quotes the Old Testament... Quotes what we have come to call the Septuagint. It's usually represented by the Roman numerals, LXX, that's 70. And it is called that to, to reflect the 70 scholars who were brought together to take the Hebrew scriptures and translate them into Greek. It took 70 of them, and it took them many years. You don't come up with a fresh translation from the original language into another language quickly. These are the best scholars. And in fact, there's a lot of um, stories around this. Most of them are probably not true, but one that I heard that I thought was particularly interesting, and again, I think this is not likely a historic fact, but they said they got these 70 scholars, they brought them together, they put them all in their own little room and no one knew why they were there. They were all given a copy of the Hebrew scriptures and they were told to translate it into Greek. And after all the manuscripts were collected, every scholar had translated it exactly the same way. Now, that likely didn't happen. Likely what happened was the 70 of them got together and over the course of many years put together a translation of the Hebrew scriptures into Greek so that the people who mostly spoke Greek at the time could read and understand it. And even though this was written to Hebrews, they were most often quoting the Scriptures in Greek. And by the way, to them it wouldn't be called the Septuagint. That's what St. Augustine called it back in, in like the three and 400s. Uh, they would have just called it the Scriptures. Uh, maybe these were the Scriptures that Timothy himself was raised on by his mother and grandmother. And so when the author reaches back and, and borrows this translation, uh, it is from a slightly longer version of that verse. And he says this, Let all of God's angels worship him. Furthermore, not only were these angels to worship this one, which, by the way, is the only one that they worship, verse 7 says, of the angels, he then says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. This comes from Psalm 104, verse 4. And I did mention this issue of the Septuagint, and I'll just say it again. Sorry to get into the... The history of these things so much, but it is relevant here. Because in the way that the Septuagint writes that verse, they, they switch things around. Um, in Psalm 104, in the, in the Hebrew, it says that the wind, for example, is a messenger and the fire is a messenger. Uh, the Septuagint translation understands that differently to say that the messengers themselves are wind, the messengers themselves are fire. And the author says, yes, these angels are powerful. They're beings that had a beginning and have no end. They are beings that are more powerful than any human. They come as messengers of God, bringing forth his word, bringing forth prophecies of what is to occur, declaring, for example, the birth of the Messiah. They come like wind, they come like fire, but none of them are greater than the one they attest to. None of them are greater than Christ. So if we're to understand the glory of Christ, we first have to understand who He is. Greater than the angels, greater than David, greater than anyone that God had ever made a covenant with. But secondly, we have to see what He's done. Not only who He is, but what He's done. This is what we get in the next section here of Hebrews 1. Look what He says in verse 8. But of the Son, He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness, literally righteous joy beyond your companions. Once again, he's quoting from the Psalms. He's quoting Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. And he lifts that right out of the text and drops it in here, meaning this is a fulfillment of it now that psalm was interesting. That psalm was one that they would most often sing at a wedding. It was a psalm that was a celebration psalm, a, a wedding psalm, a love psalm. And the idea here was that, that the groom is being presented as one who has been anointed. Oil has been poured over his head. His friends and companions, his best men as it were, are celebrating with him. I mean this is his big day and he has been anointed with this oil of gladness and of joy and the idea here is that he is being given this gift he's being given this bride it is meant to be the the high point of his life and here the author reaches back into the joy of that psalm and applies it to Christ to say that Christ himself has also been promised a bride who is the bride of Christ the what the church it's you it's me And this ceremony that is being pictured here is the the glorious righteousness of the perfection of this union and the joy that is found in the wedding celebration. It's all directed to Christ. And what has he done? He has allowed himself to come to be the husband, the bridegroom of his bride, the church. He has come in absolute righteousness and holiness. But there's even more than that. It's also a kingdom and a a, a relationship that is permanent. See what he says here in verse 10? And again, quoting from a psalm, he says, And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. This is from Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27. And so not only is his rule a righteous rule and a holy rule, not only is that scepter in his hand one of holiness, but it is also permanent. Isn't it wonderful to know that the holy king of the world has a rule that will never end? Isn't it wonderful to know the holy king of the world, the righteous ruler of the universe, who sits today enthroned in glory, is the only ultimate incumbent ruler of the universe. Every other ruler is going to rise and fall. Every other ruler has some degree of delegated authority. But the only one who has true authority, the only one who truly dictates the overall outcome of all the events of human history is King Jesus. And he is absolutely righteous and the rule will never end. That should give you a lot of comfort in election season got a little pamphlet this week for the primaries that are coming up um, I guess we have to start talking about this again that's going to be the big thing and it's at elections and all that stuff and I think to myself at the end of the day it doesn't really matter because I know who's going to win who's going to win is the one that God has sovereignly ordained but even more than that the one who's already won and conquered and seated is the one who's going to have all the rule and authority forever and ever and quite frankly I'm quite happy to leave him on the throne amen, amen. so so don't get stressed out about all that don't let it occupy your mind don't let it take up space rent-free in your brain you're just thinking about all this stuff anytime you're tempted to worry about political stuff just remind yourself who's really ultimately in control who is on his throne and who will never be moved off it it's wonderful to see here in this psalm isn't it that the world itself is going to wear out and get rolled up and thrown away before his rule could ever come to an end He's going to see it to the very end. In the old days, you wore a garment until it was so threadbare, you couldn't patch it anymore, and then you rolled it up, and quite often it was rolled up, and it was used in a fire. It was burned. That's what he's going to do with the whole world, the psalmist says. This world's going to run its course. It's going to do whatever God wants it to do, and then he's going to roll the thing up, and he's going to burn it up, and he's going to recreate it, or he's going to renew it. He's going to restore it. He's going to redeem it, and the old one's going to be gone, and the new one's going to come, but what's not going to change is his rule over it. So, what has he done? He has established with his bride, the church, a righteous relationship that will be consummated in eternity. He has established an eternal and unchanging authority in the heavens that reigns right now. And then, thirdly, he is ruling in a way that is absolutely supreme. Look at verse 13 and 14. It is supreme. Not only is it righteous, not only is it eternal, but it is absolutely supreme and perfect. He says, and to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? I love that. Psalm 110 verse 1 lifts this up, and and that's ancient language and and imagery. In those days when when a king had successfully conquered his enemies, They would bring in the other king, and that king would be forced to bow down at the feet of the reigning king. And that victorious king would step out, and he would put his foot on the neck of that defeated king. He would treat the defeated king like he was nothing but a footstool. He would literally put his feet up on the guy's head. What is this show to everybody in the court who's looking at this it shows who is the supreme ruler and in psalm 110 the picture is this that all the forces everything that satan has ever conjured up in terms of the enemies of god are going to be put up under the feet of christ and he will rest his foot on the neck of his enemies forever and ever in righteous judgment isn't that gonna be an awesome day And what's even more amazing is that we are going to get to witness that and participate in that, in celebrating his righteous rule over the wicked. Now, lest there be some confusion and some unhealthy excitement here for a moment, he does not say that he will put all of your enemies under your feet. Just, let's be clear, I want to be pastorally sensitive to the reality here. You might be thinking, well, that's great because since I'm a child of God, that means that all of my enemies eventually will be put under my feet as well. Well, in a cosmic sense, all evil will be defeated, yes, but in this fallen world, you may very well not get the upper hand on your enemies. Uh, Don't assume that somehow this translates into what you're able to do, but believe me, you will be in heaven with no particular disappointment because you will look upon the glory of his rule and reign and celebrate with him as if it were yours. And that rule is never going to end. It is absolutely supreme and righteous and perfect and complete. And so he says here in verse 14, Are they the angels again, not all ministering spirits, sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Unless we think that these angels, as glorious as they can be, are somehow credited with more special glory than they deserve. He says, now listen, none of them were served. As a matter of fact, every one of them were sent out to serve. Not only to serve God, but to actually serve others. To serve those who belong to him. So rather than being afraid of these angels, which people often were when they appeared, you need to realize that they are the ones who are sent to serve and to minister to those who belong to the king. Here he is, the righteous ruler, the eternal ruler, the perfect ruler, flanked as it were by myriad upon myriad of angels, celebrating the glory of his holiness, singing about it nonstop, and then being dispatched by him on regular intervals throughout all of redemptive history to let people know that God is going to make a covenant with them, or that God has fulfilled his word, or that the Messiah has come, or that judgment is about to fall. And all of this unfolding perfectly on his schedule that he had ordained before the foundation of the world. And all of it based on the fact that he is the absolutely holy, sinless Son of God. That is why the author of the letter of Hebrews, wants everyone just to pause for a moment, step back and realize the glory of Christ. All of this revealed in the special revelation of the scriptures and the general revelation of creation as we saw last week. Now as impressive as that is in terms of the content, the speaker and the author has a pastoral heart and turns attention now To why it matters so we've seen who he is we've seen what he's done but we want to ask the question why it matters now it's common for people to talk about sermons having application and the meaning of the word application has changed over the years in fact most recently as I understand it people generally refer to what then am I supposed to do their idea of application is well then what do I do And there are many pastors who are quite content to give you a to-do list at the end of every sermon. Maybe you've been in churches like that. There's a passage of Scripture that is read, it's exposited, and then before you go, lest you think you could just like walk out of here without having something that you need to accomplish, here's the list of things you need to do. Here's how you need to measure up your life against this standard, these list of do's and don'ts. And for many people, that's actually quite comforting. They like the list. They say, I thank you, I've been here, I've sung the songs, I've heard the sermon. Now all I need is my, my list so that I can work on that this week and come back next week, and that will determine how happy I am. Because if I didn't do very well, I'm going to feel sad. But if I did really well, then I'll feel good, and this is something I need to live my Christian life. I don't think I have to say anything else to suggest to you that's not the way I like to do application. Application is not that. As a matter of fact, what that can be is this like pseudo-legalistic structure that is imposed upon a text and imposed upon a people and actually used to make them continually doubt whether or not they really are regenerated, whether they really are filled with the Spirit, whether they really do have absolute and full and complete assurance in the finished work of Christ. Because if I've got an unfinished list of works, I'm going to be distracted from looking at his finished work application as it existed, even several hundred years ago, was different. William Perkins, a famous Puritan preacher, used to always have a section in his sermons where he called it application, but, but he applied it to what he thought were the seven people in his church, the seven kinds of people in his church. Now, I don't think we got to go that far, because then I'd have to, every sermon, imagine how does this apply to this person, and this person, and this person. I was listening to a rather popular preacher this week who said there's like four groups of people in his church that he's thinking of most of the time. He's, he's thinking of, of, of the weary. He's thinking of the, the wayward. He's thinking of the lazy, and he's thinking of the lost. And when, when it comes to passages where we're supposed to understand the application of the text, those are the four groups of people he's thinking of. And that's pretty good. I'm going to borrow that for this Sunday. And if I were to ask myself, okay, if, if we're looking at those four types of people maybe in the church today— What part of this message would apply? And it would come right here in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Why it matters. Let's read what the author says. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape? If we neglect such a great salvation, it was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This particular section in the letter that was written to these Hebrew believers dispersed among the Roman Empire is a section of the epistle aimed at reminding them that they are at risk of drifting away from an assurance of a salvation that has already been secured in Christ. And it is a warning not to result in endless morbid introspection and doubt and fear and discouragement, but the exact opposite I don't particularly agree with the editors of English translations which like to call these warning passages. Warning is appropriate only insofar as one is reminded that they ought to do something. You could call them reminder passages. Now I grew up in Canada and we have something called weather, which if you're native to San Diego, you've read about, you've seen it on TV and in movies. But if you've ever lived in a place on the planet where, you know, we have real weather, real seasons, and it changes, and sometimes it snows for like months at a time, really, really deep, and sometimes it comes down in massive amounts. And the simple thing is this, if you've been driving for any period of time, especially in the winter, you have developed a certain skill, and that certain skill is called winter driving. We have winter tires, and we do winter driving. So the tires are, are, are bigger, and they have deep grooves and spikes on them, you know, because you've got to be able to get traction. And one of the things you learn early on as you're driving is that you need to stay in the ruts of the car in front of you so that you can actually make progress down the road. Because were you to veer out of those ruts, you end up into fresh snow, and it causes your car to spin out of control and end up in the ditch. Now, I know we live in a place where we don't have a lot of weather. Things don't really change that often. You notice that because, like, the three days a year when it rains, like, everyone, like, flies off the freeway because they're shocked. Like, what? I can't take that corner at 80? It's like, no, it's wet. Canadians don't have that problem. Like, we see the rain. In fact, we don't go out when it rains because we know how Southern California people drive, and it's just too risky. Like, "Mm, forget it. Like, I'm just staying home. High risk out there. The danger comes in drifting. If you stay in the grooves, if you stay at the right speed, if you do what you're supposed to do, you're fine. The warning comes not to drift. The drift is what results in the danger. And beloved, in this particular passage, I want you to see that there is a warning about drifting. But that drifting doesn't have to happen. As a matter of fact, I think this part is absolutely encouraging. This is meant to make you happy. This is meant to build you up. If you read that section in Hebrews 2 and you come away worried and despondent, you've misunderstood what the author is intending to do. This is not the part where he says, now I've extolled the glory of Christ and I've talked about all of his finished work. Now I better be careful to rein in those Christians lest they go off and just live any way they want basking in the glory of God's grace. We can't have that now. So I'm going to pull them back and I'm going to warn them To make sure that you always look at your life and what you're doing and line it up against some external code, and if it's not measuring up day by day, week by week, maybe you ought to doubt your salvation and whether or not you're saved in the first place. I believe that the author has the opposite intention here. Look carefully at what he's doing. He says simply to pay closer attention to what you've already heard. We don't want you drifting from it. You've heard the good news. You've heard the gospel. Beloved, it's something you need every day. The gospel isn't something that you just give to an unbeliever. The gospel is something believers need all the time. Remember the work is finished. Remember the battle has been won. Remember the righteousness has been granted to you. Remember the sin has been paid for. Remember, remember, that's what he's doing here. And so, don't drift from it. Pay close attention to it. The messengers declared it to you. It was believed in those days that, that the Word of God is revealed through the messengers, the angels. In the Old Covenant, this was especially the case, and it proved reliable because everybody who transgressed it or disobeyed, they received a judgment, and it was just, yes, yes. So what he's saying is that you need to understand that God's plan hasn't changed. If he issues his law, he holds you accountable to it, and if you don't obey it, there is judgment. But in case the believer starts to think, oh, no, judgment, I better be careful that I obey the law, he says, no, 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 before you go there, let me remind you about God's relationship in Christ to the law. He says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation, the salvation that was secured for you is the salvation that came from the one who fulfilled the law already. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? There, so it's not about looking to see how well am I doing lining up with the law. What matters is what he did, and he fulfilled it perfectly, and then imputed it to you and your sin to him. Case closed. So the real glory of the gospel is reminding believers of the great salvation already secured for them in Christ, not spinning them off into some introspection to see how well they obey the law and therefore question whether or not maybe they're really saved. It is a dangerous temptation to assure people of their redemption By asking them to look at themselves and evaluate performance. It is a dangerous temptation to give people assurance of their salvation by asking them to look at themselves and ask how they're doing. It is a dangerous temptation to go back into the Word of God when somebody is wrestling with whether or not they truly are redeemed and say, Well, how do you measure up against this command and this command and this command and this command? command? And how often do you do this, 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 and this? And are you faithfully reading your Bible and praying and going to church and giving and witnessing? And when you lay out all of these things as some kind of standard of righteousness to which one attaches their assurance of salvation, you have desecrated the very glorious nature of the gospel. Friends, you're doing a disservice to Christ. On the other hand, if one doubts, and by the way, they will doubt. You will doubt. There will be times of darkness and struggle. There will be times where assurance is hard to find. But then give them something they can actually hold on to, which is not look to what you are doing, but look to what Christ has already done. Now, all of a sudden, it changes, doesn't it? Now, as one brother in this congregation said to me one time, you begin to fight with assurance, not fight for assurance. You begin to use assurance then as a weapon against the doubts that come. You use your assurance as a weapon against the doubts that come. And that can only be possible if it's anchored to the absolutely perfect finished work of Christ. That's why it matters. And so he says... This salvation was declared at first by the Lord. He came bearing his own gospel, and it was attested to us by those who heard. Just a note here, if you're looking at that carefully, who is the us? The us is the ones who are writing this epistle and the ones who are receiving it. So you have a writer and you have an audience. The, the us is the, the audience, this, this group. They received it. Who did they receive it from? They received it from the ones who heard. Who are the ones who heard? The ones who heard were the apostles or the disciples or the eyewitnesses of Christ. So Christ said it. He came bearing his own gospel. There were eyewitnesses to it who heard it. And they, in turn, passed it along to people like the author of the book of Hebrews and those who received it. You see, he was part of the gospel message. But that's not enough because verse 4 says that in top of all of that, God also bore witness. And he did so by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now, he did this through signs and wonders. Uh, Scholars think that might be looking back to the old covenant glorious revelation of his theophanies where he would manifest himself in these signs and wonders, where he was a pillar of cloud, a pillar of fire, uh, revealed himself in the burning bush, spoke to Moses through the cloud and the thunder and the lightning, passed before him, as it were, in such glory that it left him glowing and he had to cover his face, uh, revealed himself in the way that he, through all of his power and majesty, held back natural forces like opening up the Red Sea so that people could walk through, signs and wonders, all throughout the old covenant pointing to him. And then in the new covenant, especially in the early church, there were definitely some miracles that were performed, miracles of healing, miracles of raising people from the dead, miracles of speaking in tongues and, and being able to interpret those tongues. Uh, But those miracles of healings and resurrections and tongues and interpretation, uh, those faded away when the final word came. There's no need for tongues or interpretation of tongues anymore. Uh, There's no need for miraculous healings of people who have that gift anymore because all of that was authenticating those who were giving that word. And when that word was settled and written down and and brought together in what we have as the Bible, uh, those faded away. But there is one evidence left there is one evidence that is still absolutely manifest today in the church and i would say it is this the gifts of the holy spirit distributed according to his will these gifts that each and every christian is given Uh, we saw those back in romans chapter 12 verses 6 to 8 when we studied that there are gifts of preaching and of teaching Uh, Gifts of mercy and gifts of giving and of service. There there are all kinds of ways in which the Holy Spirit empowers us to do work beyond our natural ability. Peter says there are are two kinds of gifts. There are the speaking gifts and there are the serving gifts. The speaking gifts are the ones that God gives in order that people might proclaim God's word clearly. And then there are the serving gifts. And they serve according to the strength the Spirit provides. Those gifts are still present. Those gifts are still relevant those gifts are still part of the the church today and they hope, and they point back to this gospel that we are supposed to be constantly reminding ourselves of constantly being reminded of and constantly asking the lord to help us not to drift from not that one would lose one's salvation but that one would forget the glory of their salvation i mentioned at the beginning the first question in the Heidelberg Catechism, which was, what is your only comfort in life and death? Well, the second question, I think, is just as appropriate, and it would be a great way for us to conclude this sermon this morning. And this question goes like this. What do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? And the answer is this. First how great my sins and misery are. Second, how I am delivered from all my sins and misery. And third, how I am to be thankful to God for such deliverance. Number one, my sin is great and it's miserable. Number two, I have been delivered from my sin and misery. And number three, I give thanks to God for delivering me. You can apply that by way of application to any one of those four types of people I mentioned earlier. How would you apply that to the, to the wayward person? How would you apply that to the person who seems to have, have drifted? You apply that to them by calling that person back, by calling that person to remember the gospel, by, by reminding that person over and over again of the finished work of Christ. That's what draws them back. It's winsome and attractive and beautiful. I mean, it's something that people want to hear. May I just recommend to you something? If there's somebody you know who has drifted away, badgering them and beating them down with guilt is not a winsome way to win them back. I haven't met too many people that have Return back to to active fellowship in the body saying, yeah, I was really drifting there for a while, but somebody came along and they made me feel so much shame that I just had to come back. (laughs) I mean, I I came back that one time and you guys were so good at ignoring me and and making me feel bad and exposing me for what I had done wrong and reminding me of my sin that I just couldn't help myself. I had to come back. What do you do when, when you encounter somebody who's drifted? May I offer this suggestion? Point them back to Christ and remind them that that's where you have to look all the time as well. What about the weary? And are any of you weary today? You're weary because you just are tired of the constant battle with the flesh? May I recommend that it might be from your constant battle with trying to carry a load that God does not intend you to carry? One of the most beautiful testimonies in all of Scripture to the grace and kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ comes in Matthew chapter 11. And if you would like to jot this down or turn there very quickly, you can. It's in chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. It's probably one of my favorite sections in all the Bible. It's an invitation. It's not an altar call. It's an invitation. And Jesus Christ himself gave it. And this is what he said, beginning in verse 28 of Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Weary people are burdened people. And burdened people are often burdened by burdens that God would not have burdened them with. I haven't met too many people that are weary because of all the rest they're getting. (laughs) Man, I've got to tell you, Pastor, I'm just... I'm getting so much rest lately. I just I can't take it anymore. I mean, it is wearing me out. And yet Jesus says so clearly, "Come, I'll give you." It is say, Come and I'll give you more law. Come and I'll give you a to-do list. Come and I'll give you a way to clean up your life. He says, "No, come. I'll give you rest. Rest from the battle. Rest from trying to do what I've already done." And then he says in verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I want to help somebody find rest for their souls. Point them back to his finished work. For if you couldn't say it any clearer, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The wayward are called back with the winsome truth of the gospel. The weary are encouraged by the winsome truth of the gospel. What about the lazy? The lazy are the ones who haven't yet applied this truth in their own situation. They just don't seem to care. It doesn't matter to them. They just haven't really found a need to apply the gospel in everyday life. They're the ones that you also call alongside you to say, brother, sister, if you don't, when trials come, you're going to be blown all over the place. Anchoring yourself in the truth of the gospel is what helps you for when things happen that you weren't expecting. The reason we sing the songs we do here, the reason Dave is so strategic in how he chooses songs, and the reason why we strategically consider what text to preach and what text to read to you, and what texts are going to be in the benediction, and what is said even between songs, is because every aspect of that is meant to carefully curate your experience here to be reminded of the gospel. We don't want to be lazy about how we present that, and we don't want you to be lazy about how you receive it. Give thought and careful attention to what is being said. And then finally, to the lost. What what do you apply to text like this in their case? Well, you tell them that you are lost, that if you have not put your faith and trust in Christ, who has done that finished work, you are putting it in something else. Isn't it interesting that he says, don't neglect so great a salvation? Listen, the salvation is great. The salvation is complete. The salvation is free by grace alone through faith alone. It's not a matter of cleaning yourself up enough in order to deserve it. So to the lost, one applies this by simply saying, take it at face value. Believe it, receive it, enjoy it. Be lifted up and excited by it. Leave this place filled with joy because of this reminder not burdened as if it were a warning four different types of people same solution it's the same prescription every time remember the first time i was asked to preach up at grace community church i was a pastor on staff there and normally john MacArthur is the preacher and so when you get an opportunity to preach it's like a big deal you know because you're Kind of like filling that pulpit, and it's sort of meaningful to young pastors when they when they get that nod. And so I, I was in the front row, and I was singing along. I was trying to stay focused on the singing and all that, but I was actually pretty nervous. And um, at the last stanza, just maybe one or two lines in, to my left, I see this man approaching. It was your brother. Jonathan, and as I'm standing there, he slips a piece of paper into my hand, and I look down, and he says, you need to use this word in your sermon. Now evidently, this is sort of like an initiation that no one had informed me of, and so the very first time you preach there, you're supposed to use whatever word is written on a piece of paper and put into your hand. Now, as much as I enjoy being extemporaneous, there are certain contexts in which I try to stay pretty scripted. This would normally be one of them, but I'm a man under orders. So, I'm walking up, and I open up this piece of paper, and the word written on the paper is amoxicillin. And at one point in the sermon, I I remember referencing something that was really the Bible's cure-all for everything. And that reminded me of the fact that my children at that stage in our lives, we had many young children, and they were always getting the same sorts of diseases that they spread around in the nursery every week. And so we would take the kid to the doctor, and it was always the same prescription. It was always what? Amoxicillin. I remember thinking they should sell this stuff in bulk in Costco. Like, you should just be able to go buy it. Like, we don't even need the doctor anymore. We're like, oh, let me guess, amoxicillin. Like, yeah, how'd you know? It's like, we got four kids. Not to be trite, but, but when I think about how a simple understanding of the gospel applies to everything, I just I think of that illustration. It, it's prescribed for everything. It's prescribed for the weary person. It's prescribed for the wayward person. It's prescribed for the lazy person. It's prescribed for the lost person. It's something that you can never get enough of. It is always going to be good for you. It is always going to be encouraging. And it is always going to be anchoring for the soul. May that be what you leave with today. May it lift you up and encourage you and fill you with joy as you consider the glory of Christ. Let me pray. Father, thank you for... This time together this morning in your Word, such a powerful passage of Scripture and so relevant to us. I ask that today, if there is anyone who has yet to truly embrace this in faith, that you would, by the power of the Holy Spirit, apply this simple gospel truth to their hearts today. That you would give them the act of faith as ordained before the foundation of the world. That they might put their faith in Christ and Christ alone and that you would then, by the power of the Holy Spirit, build into them the habit of faith as they walk, worthy of the gospel, trusting in you. For those who are already your children born again, sins absolutely and perfectly and eternally paid for by the blood of our Savior Jesus Christ, may today be a day that reminds them of the glory of that truth. Oh, Father, lift them up, fill them with joy, encourage their hearts, I pray that they would just bask in the wonder and the glory of it. Father, knowing that it is not a recipe for lawlessness, it's not a recipe for sin unbridled, it's not a recipe for licentious behavior, simply claiming grace as the cure-all so that we can satisfy every desire. No, quite the opposite. This realization, this remembrance of what it cost, will drive us back into humble, thankful gratitude and an obedience that doesn't come as an effort to live up to a standard of law, but an obedience that comes as an act of love and gratitude to a gracious Savior. For it is in His name we pray. Amen.